Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. How is New York's economy doing? What's the status of New York state finances? What does this year's Wall Street slump mean on both fronts, as well as for New York City specifically, and what's happening with the court-ordered impasse on the New York City budget? What big questions does plateaued MTA ridership pose for the Transportation Authority's finances and those of New York State? What should we make of the deals moving ahead involving major state subsidies for a new Buffalo Bills stadium and the massive Penn Station area redevelopment plan? To give his analysis of all of the above and much more, we're going to talk for hours here. <laughs> I'm pleased to be joined again today by New York State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli, the state's chief fiscal officer. The state controller is, as I said, the state's chief fiscal officer that also is a watchdog over state government, ensuring that state and local governments use taxpayer money effectively, efficiently, and so forth. The controller is also the sole trustee of the roughly $260 billion New York State Common Retirement Fund, that's the public pension systems, uh, among other responsibilities, including reporting on and analyzing state finances. We have some new information to discuss there, auditing state agencies, of course, and locals, uh, and administering the state's multi-billion dollar payroll. So we have a lot to discuss with State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli. He was last on the show about a year ago. Uh, boy, does time fly here. And that was just after then Governor Andrew Cuomo had announced his resignation. We had a really interesting discussion, very different from today's conversation. Uh, this conversation will be much more about the questions I've outlined already. Uh, but if you want to uh, revisit that conversation from last year, it was a really thoughtful discussion with Comptroller DiNapoli uh, and my new conversation with him in just one moment. Very briefly, first, if you've missed any recent episodes here of the show, you can find them all at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts or we have them all at the Gotham Gazette website. We've been mostly focused on a couple of key congressional primaries that are coming up for their votes in August. August 23rd is the next primary day here. Uh, I've been speaking with a lot of candidates in the new New York 10 race. That's a congressional district with no incumbent running that covers a lot of lower Manhattan and a stretch of Brooklyn. I also recently interviewed uh, Suraj Patel, one of the three major candidates in the 12th Congressional District race. I'll be having Representative Carolyn Maloney on the show soon to talk about her re-election bid. And we have an invitation out to Representative Jerry Nadler, the third major candidate in that race. So hopefully he'll join us as well before the August vote gets going. I've had a bunch of other really interesting guests, including about a half a dozen of those Democrats running in New York 10 but also State Senate Deputy Leader Michael Gennaris on a whole bunch of issues, New York City Controller Brad Lander. So I'm getting the good city-state controller uh, uh, guest list going here and much more. So check out any or all of those episodes, as I said, at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts or the Gotham Gazette site. And also at GothamGazette.com, we, of course, have all of our reporting, uh, and that includes a lot on New York City and state politics and government. All right. New York State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli, thank you very much for being here. How are you? 
I'm good, Ben, and I'm glad to be back with you. I didn't realize that it had been that long because we always have a thoughtful conversation. I really appreciate your uh, very effective style of journalism. But given all the topics you want to cover, I'm also glad I had my cup of coffee before we start the conversation. I'm glad, and I'm glad we're not talking about all those political races because that's yeah. even more complicated than the finance. Yeah, who are you endorsing? No, I'll leave, I'll yeah, leave that no, aside. No, yeah. that, we want to be friends with everybody in New York City. Yeah, well, we'll we really want to talk about a lot of the um, the the sort of policy and the and the budgetary and economic uh, items that I outlined. So we are unfortunately going to leave the politics to another discussion. But uh, but yes, thank you for being here. I was also surprised it had been a year. Although maybe I, maybe we snuck in a conversation in between that I that I didn't even find when I was looking back. But. Um, You've been you've been controller for for quite a while now. You're you're up for re-election this year again. Maybe end of the show we'll sneak in a quick minute about that. But let's really dig in here on the state's fiscal picture, the economic picture. Um, we have a, a lot to discuss. Just even even beyond uh, some of what I was planning to ask you about. Just late last night, and we are speaking here on Tuesday, August second, twenty twenty two. Just last night on August first. The state division of budget released the first quarterly update on the current fiscal year's enacted budget financial plan. Um, their top line is that favorable financial results through June of 2022 here are now being overshadowed somewhat by less favorable economic picture moving forward. I know you haven't had a time to fully digest this large document with a lot of new information from the state division of budget, but any initial reactions to what's at least in the sort of summary and, and you know, top lines here from the state division of budget? Well, you know, I, I think we all uh, have recognized that we're in a very volatile time and with a lot of contradictory data points in terms of where the economy is headed, right? That whole debate, are we in a recession, not in a recession? Uh, and I think the, the update reflects the fact that, um, you know, the economy certainly broadly nationally is slowing. New York is going to be impacted by that. You know, the good news is that it's still projecting that will be in balance for this year's budget. The, you know, the challenge is that where is it, you know, the, the, the previous update, the DOB does this, you know, on a, on a I guess, a quarterly basis. Usually we, we see uh, information. It had no out year budget gaps. Now there's a projection of a three hundred and ten million dollar deficit going into next year and and uh, higher budget gaps in, in the in the out years. So it, it's kind of in a way, a return to that picture that we've been more used to in New York, which is that you get through a certain budget year and then you have to start the next year uh, with a bit of a hole. But um, I'm pleased, at least at this point, you know, because we've been showing so far that our revenue has been coming in higher than projection. Mm-hmm. So what's happening now is the projections are going to be lowered. Right. So we'll measure moving forward how uh, revenue comes in versus the updated projections. Hopefully it'll stay on track to keep balance for the rest of the year. We, we have been in New York State building up our reserve funds. So that commitment is still there not just in the current budget, but in future years to build up those reserves, because that's really your cushion for economic shocks. And we still have uh, federal money that was not being is not being spent all at once. So so 
if we have the most extreme kind of downturn in revenue, you arguably could pull forward some of the federal money that we had allocated to future years. I would hope that we don't have to do that. So I guess, Ben, I would say, given given the, the complexity of the current um, state of the U.S. economy and we're affected by that, I'm not surprised that it's, it's a more modest projection for revenue at this point. But, you know, I what I do see is the current year budget, you know, barring a, a broader shock holding together and important vet investments were being made for education, for healthcare, for childcare, for programs to help the recovery go. We're still growing jobs in New York state. You know, that hasn't changed. So we've been lagging the national numbers because we were hit hard and early by COVID. So it's taking us longer to dig out from under it, but you know, not all the trends are negative. I think one of the big things I'll wrap up on this is obviously mm-hmm. Wall Street's having a tough, tough year. So the kind of record, near record profits and bonuses we saw last year, which we then tax, counts for a big percentage of revenue coming to the state. That's not likely to repeat this year. So I think some of what you're seeing is a, a more realistic view that uh, the securities industry is not going to be as big a contributor in terms of tax revenue as they had been uh, last year or the year before. Mm-hmm. And so much of this is relying on personal income taxes. Very interesting in this in this first quarterly update um, to the fiscal year 2023 enacted budget financial plan that um, in the current fiscal year, which we're now just a little over a quarter into the estimate for tax receipts, it says um, has been increased by two billion dollars. Um, but that that will then start to slow estimates save. As you say, we're in a pretty volatile uh, situation and uh, there's a cloudy picture with certain indicators looking good, certain indicators not looking so good. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, even- on that, just quickly on that, you know, yeah. the, the estimated taxes, you know, that wealthier people pay is where you saw, you know, some of the softness and some of the negative. So withholding has been very strong because, again, payrolls continue to go up. So it, we, we have these contradictions. We, you know, we, we did a report and others are also reporting on taxpayer migration, that issue of our, you know, our our particularly upper income New Yorkers moving out of state, you know, for all the reasons that are often talked about. Yeah, there, there is a slight uptick in that. But, you know, at least up until now, we haven't seen a dramatic shortfall in personal income tax because of taxpayer migration. But this is another one of the trends that we have to look at and to see what the impact is, because actually the state revenues have relied even more on personal income tax than in the past because of Last year's budget, you know, putting the, the higher tax on upper income New Yorkers. So we are, you know, the state is more reliant than ever on personal income tax, which we know, based on economic trends, is often a very uh, less predictable and, and volatile uh, revenue source. Say, say just a little bit more about that, because that was actually one of my next couple of questions for you, yeah. which was about um, where where your, your office is at and where the broader, you know, uh, picture is at in terms of really analyzing those trends, because so much got uh, uh, happening at once with COVID and people just, you know, leaving New York City, leaving New York State. Um, you've had other trends in that direction, uh, you know, for decades, really, of, of, you know, population loss relative to uh, other parts of the country, you know, as we keep seeing one or two congressional seats, you know, knocked off of New York's tally, but that's been a long time trend. But then you get COVID maybe accelerating things, then you get this increase in taxes that you just mentioned. At the same time, personal income taxes have been, as you said, also uh, outpacing even projections and continuing to increase the more 
you know, wealthy people that may leave New York. You get lots of new moguls and business, you know, uh, success stories that are happening that are growing in the state. You're, you, you said your office is is studying these trends or yeah. what's the, yeah. I, mean, we, we, I guess our first report on this we're, was looking at trends pre, right pre-COVID. So we're going to continue to look at it. Uh, look, there's certainly a net uh, migration. It's not a huge number, but a net migration out. And, and they tend to be taxpayers at the higher end. Um, but also, you know, because there are other reports that sometimes don't fully account for the fact that some folks are still uh, paying some taxes to New York City and or New York State, uh, you know, even if they may have, a, you know, in a sense, a part time residence here. And of course, when folks it affects New York City a little differently, New York State. So if, if you're paying New York City income taxes and you decide because of COVID or, you know, whatever quality of life reason, you you don't want to be in the city and you're going to decamp out to the Hamptons or the Hudson Valley. That may hurt the city's income tax collections, mm-hmm. but it won't hurt the state because you're still within New York state. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in some ways, you know, some of that out migration, um, you know, within the borders of New York hasn't hasn't affected the state as much as it's affected the city. Obviously, when folks say they're moving to Florida, uh, that's that's where it may may affect the state. So, look, this is just something we're going to have to continue to look at. There's always a lag in the data, uh, but um, you know, I, I would say it's 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 had an effect, but it's not had. You know, look, the the most and some of it gets tied with the politics and the polarization. Everybody's moving to, everybody I know is moving to Florida. Well, actually not everybody is. And some people, after they're in Florida, they're moving back. So it's, it's, a, it's a, in many ways a moving target, but it's something we have to look at carefully because we do depend so heavily on uh, the income tax at the state level. The city is a little different because you got the property tax, you know, uh, not that that hasn't been affected by these trends as well, but the state doesn't have a, a property tax. So it's really the, the personal income tax, it's sales tax, it's, it's uh, federal aid. I mean, those are the big revenue sources for the state. You had earlier mentioned use of, of federal relief funds that were designed to be spread out over years to help, um, you know, New York State weather the the storm of COVID over, you know, multiple years, that that massive state aid. Also, there was um, aid to localities and, and a big boost to New York City, of course. Where are we at in terms of um, sort of evaluating the use of that money? There is dedicated areas where where federal money, you know, is is dedicated to be spent on education and, and other direct. But there's also a lot of leeway for state leaders to make decisions around spending that money. Where where are we at in, sure, in terms of sort of accountability for that and understanding the decisions that are being made and evaluating those decisions? How is your office um, doing that work? Well, it's, I, I think it's a great question, Ben, and one that I think we, we need to all spend more time on. Look, you know, the, there's no doubt in my mind the federal money was made a huge difference to keep New York State afloat and our localities afloat and, you know, the, the MTA afloat, go down the mm-hmm. long list. And, and credit to, to the Biden administration and, and credit to our congressional delegation, particularly to Chuck Schumer, or we benefit from him being the Senate Majority Leader. And I think a, a big part of the goal was to provide as much money in as unrestricted a way as possible uh, to localities and to states. That's a plus. The negative on it is that now that we're in a calmer, you know, period, I guess calmer, I don't know, it's starting to get volatile again, though. But um, people are rightfully starting to say, well, how exactly, you know, was this money spent? And, 
you know, that's where we're trying to work with our partners in the executive uh, to provide more accountability. So we set up a, what we call our federal tracker, which is a monthly accounting for the broad category of, of federal dollars that have come into the state, how much has come in, what's the name of the program, how much has gone out the door. But what we're starting to get is a lot of inquiries, particularly at the local level. Uh, people are asking at the grassroots level, well, how much was spent on what programs in my county or my village or my city? And that's where the data uh, is not as granular and not as specific as I think it should be. The, the, each locality that receive the federal money and the state has to account to the U.S. Treasury. They don't have to account to, to us at the state level because it's federal money. But again, there, um, you know, what we, what we see are very broad categories of um, state operations, backfilling revenue loss from COVID without any, you know, real clarity or specificity as to where exactly, you know, to what program was funded by what amount of money. And, and look, at some point, I think the feds are going to ask for more clarity. Uh, but I think it would also be helpful to account for this money, you know, not just to say, well, we, we you know, we had an anticipated gap. We fill the gap with this money. So therefore, you know, we're able to still spend the state budget as we had intended. And I, and I know money is always fungible when you're talking about the you know, $220 billion state budget. But I think this is an area where there really needs to be more specificity. So we're trying to play our role in this regard. But part of it is a limitation on what data is available to us. So we we're, you know, we've had conversations with the executive. We want to continue those conversations because we're starting to get asked a lot of those questions. Mm -hmm. and, and, and when you say you're saying you're, you're speaking with the, the executive branch about getting you more information about specific COVID relief allocations. Yeah. 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 Instead of just saying, yeah, well, we, we've used we've used this money to, to backfill revenue shortfall. Mm -hmm. Um. It's kind of just a broad category. We're seeing that at the local level too. It's it's you know it's like we used it to to plug a plug a budget gap, but right. it, it didn't say that it funded specific programs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, the the question about you you got it this earlier. There's going to be decisions to be made about some of these out year uses of federal money now that the state division of budget has some of these um, you know. Uh, reassessments of projections with potential economic slowdown. And, and now uh, there actually are some out year budget gaps in this in this update to the financial plan. Again, uh, next year, you know, virtually, you know, three hundred million dollars is, is virtually, uh, you know, nothing in a two hundred twenty billion dollar budget and very easy, easy to figure out. But then you get into some larger projections, as you noted. So the the immense growth of the state budget over the last couple of years, again buoyed by this federal COVID aid, but also the income tax, um, you know, that we talked about. Questions about using the federal aid, questions about you know potential slowdown of revenue and and the economic picture. Are there going to have to be some really tough discussions? Do you think soon, or are we not quite there yet around how to really sort of pull back some of this spending that has grown so much and and one-time spending versus recurring? You know, the, the, the budget process uh, in Albany tends to be one of, you know, always adding to whatever mm -hmm. the executive proposes. And certainly because of what you laid out, not to repeat it, but the, you know, the, the strong uh, revenue coming in, partially because of the tax increases, certainly the federal money, 
And I think it's an election year this year, Ben, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> we certainly saw a pretty uh, ambitious executive budget proposal that was obviously added to uh, as the legislature went through the process. So I don't get a sense that um, it sunk in, if I could put it that way, that we, we have to start asking these tough questions. You know, we've been warning as appropriate role for the controller to say, you know, this federal money is not forever. Don't tie the federal money to recurring programs because at some point the money is not going to be there unless you have a, a, a revenue source identified, uh, you know, to, to backfill when the federal money won't be there. It's why we kept making the plea for the rainy day reserve funds to be built up. And, and the, this budget and the, the financial plan includes much more aggressive building up of the rainy day reserves. But, but I do think, it, you know, if this current dynamic that's identified in the in the budget update that we just talked about accelerates, you know, let, let, let's take worst case scenario, not one that I'm projecting, but let's say instead of ending up in balance at the end of this year, we end up short this year, right? Let's say there's a negative cascade as far as the economy and revenue. Um, you know, I'm not anticipating that we're going to have to do mid-year budget cuts, but, you know, that, that that's obviously the worst case scenario. I think more likely where we're headed right now is that, you know, the, the as you point out, the relatively modest budget cap projected at this point, if that would grow, it means after the election, new legislature, um, my expectation, a reelected governor is going to have to face a budget uh, executive budget proposal that is going to have to be much more conservative than uh, than what we saw this past year. Uh, but look, it, it gets back to we have to look at why we put out our monthly cash report. What's the revenue? What's the spending? You know, so if revenue is off, uh, another way to manage this in the short run, obviously, is to control spending. And if there are ways, you know, and the governor, to her credit, even, even before this update, had said to her, her, her cabinet, you know, the heads of her agencies, you really need to look carefully at your spending and perhaps, you know, curtail some of it from what you would first anticipate it. So I, I think, you know, I, I, I think it's not a surprise what the budget update said, but I think when you see the numbers in black and white, it's that's the reality check. So I certainly hope for, you know, my colleagues in the legislature, uh, and I was there for a long time. So I, mm-hmm. you know, we fight for our districts and we fight for programs. Nobody likes to come home and say, be proud of me. I cut the budget, you know, uh, mm-hmm. just the opposite is what you want to break about but have to be mindful of uh, a different economic trend. I'm a little worried also, you know, we people don't focus enough, Ben, but, you know, we have an environmental bond act that's going to be before the voters, $4.2 billion, a lot of good stuff in there that's going to help local government, state government deal with issues like climate change and water quality and so on. You know, if people are nervous about where we're at, you know, that 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 proposal might, might face a more difficult uh, prospect in terms of, of passage or not. So, you know, this, again, a lot of uncertainty out there. But look, we also know when things are volatile, they're not always volatile in the negative. We mm-hmm. could be having a different conversation a few months. So pray to God, you know, the war in Ukraine is resolved um, and 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 you see a rebound because, that, I mean, obviously we hope that happens. We have no, mm-hmm. no reason to think it will. But we didn't know the war was going to happen. So right, there's a lot we, live, of- we live in this time where, you you, you know, who, know, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're seeing different major uh, packages, you know, uh, passing or being, you know, negotiated at the federal level, those obviously can have an impact too uh, on the local economy, on the national economy and so forth. Um, I want to come back to the MTA in a minute, but uh, the New York City budget is in this um, uh, kind of uh, 
you know, almost a little bit flying under the radar situation of limbo where a judge has uh, ordered, uh, has issued a temporary restraining order on the city from following through on some of its uh, planned school budget cuts. So everything is sort of frozen. We're speaking here on Tuesday, August 2nd. The next hearing in that case is is on Thursday, August 4th. So we might get some more news very quickly here, new developments. But uh, your office is supposed to certify the city budget, uh, whether it's balanced. And that is usually happening uh, around this time of year at the state financial control board, usually meets uh, again around this time, late July, early August. Um, what's the status of that? Are you concerned that, that the control board isn't going to be able to meet anytime soon? And, you know, how, how, you know, how, how concerned should everyone be about the status of the New York City budget being sort of in limbo here based on this lawsuit and court order around school cuts? I mean, basically what we do is, is with the city controller certify that the, the city is not in a financial uh, crisis or, or, you know, really uh, has no problem with access to the markets. It's less about certifying their budget per se, but just cert- certifying their overall fiscal strength. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, you, you, you raise a timely question because normally by early August, we know the date of the financial control board right. or, or maybe it's actually happened. Uh, as of today, we don't even have a date for the meeting. And I think part of why we don't have a date is that uh, because of this whole situation being in limbo, as you describe it. So, you know, look, at some point we I th- we have to follow uh, the requirements. So we will have that meeting. But I think until uh, this is resolved with the court case, it's, it, even the, the status of the financial control board's role uh, is going to be on hold for now. So mm-hmm. uh, but I assume, look, I, I assume this is not going to drag on forever. I think there'll be a mirror. I'm not close to the court case, but I, I can't imagine the courts are going to not come up with some kind of a resolution sooner than later. So we just have to stay tuned and see right. what they do. And, and there's the potential court resolution, but also the mayor and the city council were apparently negotiating some sort of deal to backfill these, you know, a few hundred million dollars in, in cuts. It depends exactly how you calculate it. Uh, New York City Comptroller Brad Lander has a estimate in the 400 millions, uh, you know, the city and, and city council, we're talking about 200 or so million. Um, do, you, do you urge them to sort of figure that out so that they could potentially get this suit from parents and advocates dropped? Or, you know, they've said they might be have needed to pause the negotiations because of the suit. Um, do you have any sort of urging for the parties involved here to to figure this out? Is, is you know how how big a, is there a big risk, or you you seem fairly unconcerned at this point? No, no, I mean concerned, but I, I, look, I mean obviously, uh, it always is better when the the parties involved can work it out. You know, and in this case, they seem to have worked it out when they voted on the budget, and then uh, folks seem to say we want to revisit it. Um, and, and, you know, let's keep in mind the context, you know, we were talking mostly about the state budget, which is, you know, uh, uh, has, has certain dynamics. It's going to face the city as well. Right. So in terms of impact of, of, um, revenues being down, the city will not be immune from that. You know, as you know, uh, the city pension fund, uh, you know, their valuation is June 30th and time, you know, it's all a timing thing, right? Our, our valuations are March 31st. So we had a more favorable uh, number for our end of year, but the city had a, a negative for the year. That's going to impact moving forward uh, costs, you know, to the city right. in terms of pay. So, so, you know, while 
we're focused on the education issue, very important, and 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 obviously we want the parties to have a, a, a reach common ground on this. Uh, there are going to be other cost pressures on the city and on the mayor as well. And I do, you know, I do give the mayor the mayor Adams credit. I think he came up with a budget, you know, that that was a, a bit more realistic, uh, perhaps compared to the previous year's budget. The mayor also uh, was attempting to build up the reserve funds again, mm-hmm. anticipating that we might be in for choppier times. So, you know, the city's you know dealing with uh, a lot as well. But like education, people have great passion for you. You remember Ben? I started out by being on a school board. That's how I began out on Long Island. So people care mightily about it. I mean, I, I guess the takeaway. You know, going to next year, I just hope, you know, the mayor and the council can figure this out at the time they're doing the budget and not have to <laughs> kind of redo it and, and re, re-debate things that, you know, should have been done in the normal course of things. So maybe yeah, lesson yeah. learned. You have a lot of new folks I know on the council. I was just going to say that. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Not, I'm, not, I'm not being critical, but it just, you know, it, it, do-overs don't always happen, you know. So if they can make this do-over work and be a learning experience for, you know, what is the first go-around for this mayor and the first go-around for most of the council members, you know, maybe that'll be a, a, a good takeaway from this. No, that's uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. A lot of new city council members, new city council speaker, and they they many of them seem to uh, at least be acknowledging that they uh, maybe overlooked some steps in the process here or didn't pay enough attention when the mayor was making very clear that these cuts were coming. So uh, uh, some things to reevaluate there. But uh, and, and look, there's still a lot of money being spent in education in New York City, and New York City is facing the challenge of you know declining enrollment. But, you know, just because you have declining enrollment in certain schools doesn't mean the fixed costs, you know, are, are going down in the same proportion. So it's not it's not, you know, at a time where, you know, the schools were very hard hit by COVID and having to go remote. And, you know, the teachers, you know, been really striving mightily to keep uh, education quality up with all these challenges. So, you know, and certainly, you know, for New York City uh, in terms of its future, having quality schools, uh, quality learning experience. I mean, that's absolutely key. So, you know, no surprise that of all the parts of the budget, this is the one where people say, well, wait a minute, maybe we need to do this a little better. But this can't drag out uh, either because the overall context now is a is a what appears to be a declining revenue picture across the board for New York City and for New York State. So it's not going to get any it's not going to get any easier to resolve these questions. So sooner than later for the court, sooner than later for the mayor and the city council mm-hmm. and, and perhaps understanding on the part of the uh, advocates as well uh, about the complexity, complexity of the situation we're in right now. And again, for those interested in these discussions, um, I, I got into a bunch of this with New York City Comptroller Brad Lander on our in our recent discussion. So find that episode again. Di- you know, different perspectives from the state controller, city controller, um, but but very similar comments. Uh, I just mean in terms of of how they're looking at the the issues. And by the um, way, he's he's off to a great start. Brad, Brad yeah. Lander and I have gotten to know each other really well in uh-huh. just a few short months, and he's smart and he's on top of things. Um, I'm sure he'll be happy to hear, hear that from you. Um, the MTA, uh, you have a new report out, lagging ridership leaves the MTA with hard choices, must make, put some options out there, uh, you know, be more transparent about what's coming. There's been a lot of discussion of this at MTA meetings. Um, I didn't mention it earlier, but I also interviewed Jano Lieber a few weeks back. We talked about this. He is insistent that in part because of of some of the um, you know changes in work from home trends and and ridership at the MTA, but he, I believe he was even talking about this before that 
New York State really needs to think differently about funding the MTA and about funding transit, and that transit and the MTA need to be seen as among essential services and not just, um, you know, sort of the fact that there is, you know, a state authority at play here, putting it, you know, on such a different footing. What financially do you think the MTA needs to really be doing here to think long term and avoid massive, you know, service cuts and layoffs that would be a disaster in terms of, you know, New York's recovery. Um, there there needs to be some real financial reckoning here. But, um, you know, there's questions around, does that mean more revenue coming from the state? Then that opens up a whole bunch of other questions about where you create that revenue. Um, the MTA seems to be very poor at reining in its own bloat and misspending and issues there. Um, what, what's your perspective on what needs to happen here to get the MTA on on better financial footing? I mean, it's key that they get on better financial footing because you know the the ability of the New York City metro area to survive, let alone thrive economically, is very much tied to the strength of the MTA and and public transit, be it the subways, the buses, or the, the commuter rail lines. Uh, you know, so a couple of thoughts. Thoughts. There's a lot there in that question. Yeah. Um, you know, again, the federal government is what saved them. There's no mm -hmm. question about it in terms of what was what happened with, you know, when COVID hit and the impact there. There's also no question that the MTA, and let's give Jano credit, is relatively new. I mean, he's certainly not brand new, but a uh, smart guy. Um, you know, when you saw in the past, you remember they had their their so-called transformation plan uh, to try to uh, cut expenses. You know what? And, and it was kind of touted that it was going to shrink the bureaucracy there. And when we did a report, it actually showed that um, the staff that was most uh, affected and downsized were, were operation staff which had a direct role to play in terms of the quality of the of the commuter experience and those taking the subways. So so they scrapped the transformation plan. You know, this is, you know, right, right, right. I guess yep. about the time that Jano came in. So you're right. They, they have a they've had a pure, a poor track record in terms of managing, uh, you know, their own uh, affairs and operations. So so part of it needs to come from within the, the the existential challenge if that's the right word talking about transit is that so much of their revenue is dependent on people using the trains you know be it the subways or you know loyal and railroad or buses and and you you just have seen uh that they were off in their projections about how soon people would come back. So the fare box revenue, which in the past has been like supported half of the cost of operations is, I think, what was it? I think in our report about 31, 32%. So, so part of the challenge is also not in, the, not in their own, uh, not solely in their own uh, uh, power. We've got to get people back on the trains. So you, mm -hmm. you get back into the issues of, as you touched on work schedule, right? Are, are we are we never going to have people five days a week going into the office? We might not, but you know, if it's three or four days a week, that's one thing. Versus you know, one day a week or just being remote, people feeling safe. You know, the issue of of of, of crime and public safety, particularly with you know getting on a subway, homelessness, and what does that do to the quality of the uh, riding experience? Um, you know, these are all issues that. 
to an extent are, are not uh, under the control of the MTA. So it kind of gives them challenges that they can't directly uh, handle. And I think that's why uh, handle means they, they can't they can't change right they, they, they the MTA in of itself can't change the issue of perception of of of, uh, of of public transit or decisions of corporations not not to have people five days a week in an office building um, so I think that's why Jan was saying we need to rethink the whole you know structure in terms of, of funding for the MTA but the problem is going to be the obvious one the the federal government is not going to be in a position to bail out the MTA every year. That's pretty clear. The state government, as we just talked about, is going to have its own limitations. So I think in the short run, besides the usual of the MTA really needs to look at its component entities and figure out how at the top to streamline and downsize and be more efficient uh, in managing all of the all the entities, New York City Transit, Long Island Railroad, Metro North buses, you know, in terms of the overall bureaucracy. They also need to try, at least, you know, for this year where where the federal money is still there. If patterns are changing in terms of ridership or commuter use of the rail lines, well, maybe they should do more to adjust schedules to match what the new commuting trends are. You know, you're seeing, for instance, Long Island Railroad, the weekend traffic, uh, weekend commuter uh, usage, rather, is coming up more, you know, uh, more, it's, it's beyond, it's become coming higher than initially projected, whereas the weekday has been lower. Well, maybe that suggests adjusting schedules to match where people are preferring to use the service. I think the reverse was true, if I'm remembering correctly, with bus service. During the week, um, you saw more demand for bus service. Well, well, maybe if they try to match what the service needs are of the customers and the riders, they could maximize some of that fare revenue. So I think one of the good things that they're doing now is they're doing these monthly surveys of, of riders. You know, maybe that will give them some of the, uh, you know, analysis and input that will help them match what the needs are of the people that use the system. And then they'll, they'll take more advantage of it because clearly, you know, they need to have, you know, the fare box come, mm-hmm. come back. Um, and, uh, but it, it, and then we didn't touch on it, but there's the whole question of congestion pricing, right? Which is more an issue for the capital plan right. than, than the operating plan. And, and, and although some suggest using some of that for operations, which, which my, my look at it at this point is that that would be a mistake, but, but that's, that's hitting some headwinds now too. Now that, mm-hmm. now that the Fed seem to be moving on it, no. you're, you're seeing some more objections, right? So who knows where that's headed? So right. the MTA's, we we need we the, the MTA is essential to the lifeblood of the city, the city regional economy, and, and it should be viewed as an essential service. The the there's lots of um lots of moving parts there, but just one one follow up on this because I want to get to a couple other things. We're running low on time, but um the the issue of adjust, you know, making some of those adjustments, maybe there's other incentives, maybe there's scheduling changes as you get at that could help, um, you know, revive ridership further. Maybe there's things related to safety that are, you know, keeping some people from riding more. It seems like work from home, you know, is really the dominant thing, but there, there are ways to certainly increase ridership at least some uh, and get from, as you say, somewhere around, you know, 31, 32% of operating costs being covered by fares back up towards the roughly 50, 51, 52% that was, you know, pre-COVID. Um, but even with that, 
there are these major structural issues that you get at with this discussion of the transformation plan that went nowhere, people were starting to recognize that both on the operating side and we're not even really getting at this, the the crazy capital costs of the MTA, which, which again, nobody really seems to do much on. There are really fundamental structural problems at the MTA on both sides that have to be reckoned with here at some point, don't they? Yes. Yes. And the other piece that we didn't mention, uh, labor contracts, you know, and 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 the transit workers, you know, were on the front lines during COVID. They did incredible work to keep us moving. Uh, many of them got sick early on. And, and, you know, I think they're very much viewed as some of the heroes in the New York City workforce. Uh is there going to be money to pay them, you know, uh, you know, a fair wage that I'm sure they're going to be demanding? And a lot of the costs are labor related. So there's a there's a lot there. Look, Jana Lieber has his hands full. You've seen some changes with the board. And I do think, um, you know, one of the concerns with the with any authority board has always been, are they are they political? Are they taking political orders or are they really independent? and looking out for the best interest of the authority that they are supposedly in charge of. I, I think it'd be fair to say in recent years, it, it, it became too political, not looking out for the best interest of the authority. I think you've seen some changes in terms of who's there. And, and I, I get a sense that, that you know, you're going to see a more professional approach there. Look for now to try to not discourage ridership. They've put off increasing, you know, fares, but, you know, we had gotten used to the fact that, that, that there was going to be a regular schedule of, of, you know, moderated over time, periodic fare increases. I mean, that, that's going to be back on the table at some point. But, uh, you know, the MTA is uh, I'm trying to hold off on that, you know, for the obvious reason to not discourage people from getting back on, on, on the train. So it's very complex. Look, at the end of the day, our role is we're not going to be able to solve the MTA's problem, right? That's not what we do here, but we will continue both with our regular reports, with the audits that we do to try to be helpful to the conversation. I'd like to think that the report that we put out on the MTA recently helped to clarify some of those issues in a way that wasn't destructive to what the MTA is trying to do, because we need we need to build that advocacy and that support in Albany uh, and have to recognize that, um, you know, there are a lot of folks uh, in the legislature that are not from the downstate region and they have to be persuaded that that this issue of keeping the MTA healthy is key uh, to, to, all, to all of New York State in terms of the revenue that's generated from the economic activity that's dependent on, on, on the trains and on transit. Uh, I'm speaking here in the last uh, couple moments with uh, New York State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli, the state's chief fiscal officer. Uh, just last two quick questions. One, this massive Penn State, uh, Penn Station uh, redevelopment uh, plan for, for the area. Um, you raised uh, some flags here leading up to the first uh, vote from the Public Authorities Control Board. Uh, we, we won't get into all the specifics here, but there is a massive plan being put forward by the by the governor and partners, Empire State Development, uh, private developers. Um, just broadly speaking, what are you wanting to see more of as this plan moves forward to really, uh, you know, be able to actually evaluate it better? What What's the sort of big flag that you're putting up here about the Penn Station area redevelopment plan? I mean, in, in real summary, uh, in the interest of time, the, the, the financing plan was never spelled out. Uh, and at the end of the day, they said, well, we're really just voting on the pilot agreement and more to come later. But 
you know, what I don't know, I wasn't quite sure what the point was to just do the pilot agreement, because even the pilot agreement wasn't so uh, clearly spelled out, as I understood, in terms of, you know, up to the last minute, what was being voted on. Our, our recommendation was that there need, there need to be a delay to get more information. There's no doubt Penn Station needs to be rehabilitated. There's it's absolutely no question about it. You know, the broader question of developing the office towers is obviously a larger community debate that needs to be had. But um, there, there are a lot of pieces to this. It's a huge undertaking. And I, I, I personally didn't feel there was a need to do the vote, even on the pilot agreement, uh, without more specificity on how any, being able to look at how viable the financing really is. So we need a lot more detail on, on, on this plan. And the commitment was that there'll be additional steps that, that PACB will be voting on, and there'll be more information out there. Let's see, um, let's see when that happens and how specific the information will be. This issue on the on the Penn Station plan and, and a number of, of others that have come up, there's been um, you know real questions in uh, again this election year about how Governor Hochul is um, you know sort of fundraising massively for her election campaign. She became governor with just um, you know ten months until a primary. Uh, obviously, wasn't expecting to become governor until it became you know evident not not too long before that, that Governor Cuomo was possibly on the way out, but um, uh, uh, massively raising money, tens and tens of, of millions of dollars, lots of people with state business. Um, there's still an emergency order in play where uh, the executive branch can um, uh, give out contracts without more review. Um, how are you monitoring sort of those decisions and how the governor is treating um, access to government from, you know, contracting and campaign donors and, and those emergency powers? Are, is there anything that you, you know, want to see change related to the emergency powers that would help your office have, you know, better oversight of, of some of what's um, happening on, on a variety of fronts? Because it's not, you know, the Penn Station deal is its own unicorn, but then there's lots of billions of dollars of other state contracts that are, um, you know, being given out uh, regularly on a whole host of things related to COVID and, you know, and and the related. Well, I mean, generally speaking, you know, our, you know, my view has always been emergency power should be uh, used sparingly and very limited. What we see in a trend that began uh, 2010, 2011 with the prior governor, unfortunately, to an extent, continued with this governor, is that as part of the budget process, the normal review, what we call the pre-order of the contract review, uh, for some of what you're talking about that the controller's office has traditionally had, was 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 taken away, was written out of the law. Uh, we think that's a mistake because it, you know having an additional set of eyes look at at these kinds of of contracts is is helpful in terms of protecting taxpayer interest. Um, the legislature, fortunately, uh, overwhelmingly voted to restore the powers to our office that were taken away. The governor has not signed that bill as of yet. I, I certainly hope that she will. But I will say, Ben, what we don't do, um, you know, because you get this whole issue of how we fund campaigns. And I've always been of the view that in New York, we have way too generous limits for, as I forgot now, it's over $60,000 for, you know, per contribution. It just, if it's not an actual, um, 
abuse, it certainly has an appearance of compromise that, you know, we have to be concerned about. So I'm glad that this is the last election cycle at the mm-hmm. state level uh, where we won't have public financing. Now, I know public financing is not perfect, right? Some people get in trouble for that system as well, as you know, in New York City. But I, I think that's going to be an improvement. And if it's a legal contribution, we don't look at uh, and it would be hard to get to motive, right? So if someone makes a, a legal contribu- campaign contribution uh, that's permissible under the law, there's nothing in state law that precludes them from getting a contract. So we don't, you know, we don't do a political analysis, uh, you know, and, and I would argue that's not our role. There have been some legislative proposals that I think actually makes some sense to suggest that there should be certain times of the year, let's say if you are competing for a contract where there's a, you know, a blackout where you can't contribute within a certain uh, time frame of, of when, you know, a, a, a contract is uh, being let out or maybe a tail after that for X number of months. Mm-hmm. You know, it's some of what we do with some of our procurements, frankly, in our office. Uh, and of course, you remember with the pension fund, because of the problems that happened with my predecessor, you know, we, we did a policy and SEC now has it uh, as a policy as well. Those that do business with the pension fund can't give it to the campaigns of the controller. So it's, it's, it's cleaner, but you know, some of this, um, with the courts, you know, you look at what happened with Citizens United. Uh, sometimes, you know, if, the, if you try to put certain limitations on donations, you run up to um, free speech arguments as far as, you know, political contribution. So well, it's complicated. But but I do think if there are more guardrails that we could put up, it would it would certainly make sense. And we should be sensitive to the, the appearance of um, of the influence of money. That's an ongoing issue in politics across. Well, the as, as you note, there is a new campaign finance system coming into play after this election. So there are lower limits. There's they're they're still fairly high, but they're lower and there's a public matching system. And I believe there might be some doing business limits, but that is something I've been meaning to look back at. And, you know, as you know, New York City has very, very low doing business uh, contribution limits. So it'll be that'll be something worth checking back. Uh, Just lastly, that that legislation that would restore some of your powers. Are you urging Governor Hochul to to call that bill up and sign it, you know, today, tomorrow, (laughs) immediately? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll we'll leave it there. State Controller Tom DiNapoli, thank you very much for all the time and thoughts. Appreciate it and uh, and be well. Let's not make it a year till we do it again. Thank you, Ben. Very good. Thanks.